Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, we need to go to our Michael McKee in Dublin. Well, thank you very much, and we welcome Patrick Harker, the president of the Philadelphia Fed, for your first one-on-one media interview. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Uh, I want to start with the news of the day, which was basically the news of yesterday, Janet Yellen saying that the Fed is going to ramp up scrutiny of banks. Now, Wells Fargo is not directly supervised by the Fed as its primary supervisor, but it is the largest bank in your district. So what do you say to its depositors? What do you say to the American people in general about the state of their banks, about the behavior of their banks? So Wells is in the 12th district, the San Francisco district, so we don't directly are involved with them. I think there's two things going on. One is to make sure, working with our counterparts at the OCC and the CFPB and others, that the, the consumer is protected, right, first and foremost, and that the banking system is safe and sound. At the same time, uh, Chair Yellen did uh, discuss, and I'm strongly supportive, of also relieving some of the smaller banks, particularly in my district, community banks, from some of the regulatory burden. We hear repeatedly the costs that they incur, and incur in a way that is not commensurate with their size or their significance in terms of the risks they they provide or to the whole economy. I want to get back to that in just a second, but I do want to ask about the nominal subject of this conference, Brexit. Right. The Fed was particularly worried about that earlier in the year, and now it's sort of fallen out of the statement in terms of major concerns. But the speakers here have said, yes, the data has been good so far, but the worst is yet to come. What do you think uh, about Brexit and its impact on the U.S. economy and its impact, therefore, on monetary policymaking? I think simply we don't know yet, right? There's a risk there that we need to take into account. But exactly what a Brexit will look like has not been determined. So until that's determined, we really can't plug that into our models and get precise numbers on what impact it will have on the U.S. economy. And I assume that means you can't know what impact monetary policy could have in mitigating anything. Not yet. I mean, we can try to, to plan for it, but we can't precisely tell you what that path is. In addressing the conference this morning, you were quite clear. You said monetary policy has reached the limits of what it can do, and it's time for fiscal and other policies to step up. I'd like to unpack that a little. First, monetary policy reaching its limits. Does that mean at this point uh, you're accommodative but essentially pushing on a string? So we are accommodative and will continue to be, even with increases and a shallow path of increases, will still be quite accommodative. That said, if you look at the big issue that we face, the neutral real rate, R star, right? how do we bring that off of essentially zero? Monetary policy won't do that, can't do that. That has to be fiscal policy, immigration policy, tax policy, you name it. Well, you have accommodative policies, as you mentioned, but let's go back to the banks, the small banks, etc. Regulatory or whatever reasons, they're willing to lend, but don't. People don't want the money. 
How do you change that? How does monetary policy affect that? So let's define which people we're talking about. In terms of households, no, we're continuing to see household formation, uh, new home purchases, existing home purchases. One of the issues with the existing home purchases is the inventory is low. And so we are starting to see the housing market continue to firm. Business investment, though, you're right. We have seen that quite weak over the last several quarters, last several years. That, I think, is due to a myriad of factors. Some of it is uncertainty, right? There's a lot of uncertainty right now in the world and in the U.S. There's also issues of return to the shareholders. There are a couple ways of providing returns to a shareholder. One is through long-term investment in plant and equipment. The other is through things like stock buybacks. And so boards are making rational decisions based on the cost that they have right now for capital and debt. And so I think as rates rise, we may see, and I emphasize may, um, that that reverses a little bit. Well, you've been on several corporate boards. You ran Wharton. You've got business experience. It's been presented sort of as two, two ways. One is that companies have shifted their short term now. They don't want to look at long-term investments, whether it's because they want to keep the CEO's pay up or not. The other is that why invest if you don't see a return in the near future? How do you read it? So I think it depends on the industry. It depends on the individual company. Uh, there's no universal truth there. But if you think about what companies are facing right now, given the uncertainty, particularly in the U.S., if you're an export-led country and you don't know what the world's going to look like post-election, you're probably going to hold off on some of those investments today. Three dissents at the last meeting, highly unusual for the Fed. How divided is this policymaking group? I think people do have different perspectives on the pace of normalization. I tend to be in the camp of normalizing sooner rather than later. But I wouldn't say there's great dissent other than the speed at which we, do, we remove accommodation. But nobody uh, thinks that we should do that quickly. It will be a shallow path. Tell me more about that. How fast, how far? Not clear, right? I think that is a function of how the economy responds as we start to remove accommodation. Uh, uh, at least one of the dissenters, Eric Rosengrid of Boston, said he's worried about bubbles developing in financial markets, and other members of the FOMC have suggested the same. Do you see monetary policy distorting financial markets? I think there's a potential for some bubbles, particularly something we watch in the third district, commercial real estate, and we're watching really across the country. But the other thing I worry about, again, is the dis possible distortive effect we're having on corporate decision-making is much easier to do a stock buyback today to increase your share price than long-term investing in plant and equipment. And I think that we have to reverse over time. Well, how do you reverse that? Well, I think if the cost of debt goes up over time slowly, uh, that will naturally start to reverse. Uh, is there a point where that happens, and I'm, I'm asking that because interest rates are so low that when does it start to actually have an impact on corporate decision making? Don't know until we start making that transition, right? So I think a, a shallow path toward normalization and then watching and be careful about not reacting too quickly, but let's see how that plays out as we make those changes. I think that's the appropriate policy. Now, we're speaking with uh, Patrick Harker. He is the president of the Philadelphia Federal Reserve on Bloomberg Radio and Television Worldwide. Uh, you mentioned earlier uncertainty about the political situation in the United States uh, and around the world. 
You spent much of your speech today defending the merits of free trade for an economy. Are you worried about the economy in the political climate that we see today? Sure. I think everybody is. And we don't know, and that's an apolitical statement. What we know, for example, in the Philly Fed, we published something called the Partisan Conflict Index, which is an interesting index of looking at how partisan the, the conversation is in the country. What we know is that's highly correlated with economic results. And so because we have such conflict, it's natural for people to stand on the sidelines and say, I'll just wait until some of this resolves itself. That's not good for the economy. We need people to take risks, right? The economy grows because people take prudent risk. Well, free trade is a risk for the worker who doesn't get to keep his job. How do you defend it to somebody like that? One of the things that we've not done a good job of in the U.S. is deal with the following fact. Free trade benefits the economy as a whole, right? So everybody benefits by the cost of a goods going down a few dollars. But the workers who lose their jobs get disproportionately hurt. We need to find a way to share those benefits. So the economy benefits, but we need to help give some of the benefits back to the people who are hurt. Whether it's through things like wage insurance or retraining programs, we need to do a better job of making that transition. Now, let's talk a little bit about you. Uh, un unlike many members of the Fed, you didn't come trained as a classical economist. You're an engineer right. by background and training. What do you bring to the table that maybe others don't? So I think as an engineer, right, the engineer, engineers are pragmatic right, by definition. So I'm a modeler, I'm a quant by nature. And so I bring a perspective both in terms of thinking through data, but also ultimately it comes down to judgment. Right? And people learn judgment in a variety of ways, whether it's in managing organizations or building bridges. There's a lot of ways you, you build your capacity for judgment. But that's ultimately what everybody in the FOMC table brings to the table. Well, judgment has been a hallmark of the way Fed has made policy for years, but you go back to the political question on Capitol Hill now about reigning in the Fed and arguments that the Fed should be rule-based and the Fed should answer more to Congress about how they make their policy decisions. Uh, I presume that's not something you would support. So as a modeler, right, what I know is if you have a model and equation, and you put uncertain data in, you're going to get uncertain judgments out the other end. You think about things we measure, GDP, inflation, there's a lot of error around those, and they're always revised. But those revisions happen after we have to make a decision. We have to make a decision based on what we know today. We a rule just won't do a good job of that because, again, just think simply, we base that on Q1 GDP numbers, and then they get revised, they get revised, and we look back, the rule would have done something very different. Judgment's very important to smooth out what we know to be fundamental errors in how we measure, because they're inherently hard to measure. Well, speaking of fundamental errors, the Fed's ability to predict the path of the economy has been subject to a lot of criticism, shall we say. And I wonder, uh, from your position as somebody who came from the immediate outside and has been in the job for about a year now and sees what's happening at the Fed, uh, do you think the central bank has a credibility problem communicating with the public and particularly Wall Street about what it's seeing when because you have forecast a lot of interest rate moves that haven't happened. Yeah, so I think one of the fundamental problems we've had is that in the SEP, we, the dot plot, uh, the path of the Fed funds rate is often taken as some sort of commitment by the Fed as opposed to 
our best guess, our estimate of what will happen. And I think that's been a communications issue, that it really isn't saying this is exactly what we're going to do. It's saying given what we know today, this is our best estimate of where that will be, assuming that proper policy is followed. Well, as a modeler, would you get rid of the dot plot? I'm not sure. I think it does provide value, and, and we need to think of lots of ways to communicate and be transparent. So it does provide that. It's really the interpretation of that particular dot plot, not on GDP or inflation, because people understand that's our forecast. The one I worry about is the Fed funds rate dot plot. Well, I would be remiss in not asking you as the president of the Philadelphia Fed about inflation and uh, where the Fed is on the curve. Your predecessor dissented quite often, worried about higher inflation and uh, the Fed falling behind. Would you agree with that, or do you think the Fed has more time? So I think core inflation, PCE, CPI, whatever measure you look at, is moving toward the 2% target. Some of this when it comes to headline inflation, of course, is related to energy prices and other commodity prices. As we see those firm or increase, we're going to see the 2% target attained. I am convinced we're going to achieve that sooner rather than later. So I am somewhat concerned about falling behind the curve. If you move in December and you've suggested that you would be in favor of that, uh, then do you catch up? Not clear yet. I mean, it really depends on where the, the path the economy takes from there. And that's why I think we have to make the move and then watch. November, the Fed is going to meet. Can you defend Janet Yellen saying it's a live meeting and that anything could happen a week before the election? Or are we really, are we really talking with a nod and a wink here about that meeting? Look, I take every meeting as a live meeting, too. I think we have to, because you don't know what's going to happen between now and then. Right? To take any meeting off the table is a mistake. All right, one last question, and that is uh, the Fed's been charged with playing politics to help one side in this election. How do you respond to that? So I'm a relatively newcomer. I, I've finished nine FOMC meetings. In none of those meetings have I ever heard anything political. People may disagree, but they disagree because they're looking at the data through different lenses. There's lenses of history, their academic, intellectual backgrounds, what they've done in their own lives. They, everybody, we're human beings. We interpret that data in different ways. That's why the diversity of that room is so important, right? That's why having those different perspectives. But in no case have I ever heard anybody state anything remotely political when they've tried to justify their decision. Patrick Harker, thank you very much thank for you. joining us today on Bloomberg Radio and Television Worldwide. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Olivier Blanchard is a former director of economics for Madame Lagarde and the International Monetary Fund and is now at the Peterson uh, Institute. Professor Blanchard, wonderful to speak to you again. I was so happy that in your recent Peterson Institute note, you spoke about productivity, the mystery of productivity. In your seventh edition of your textbook, Chapter 12, you go right at it, how important productivity is for growth. Why are we seeing a lack of productivity and a lack of growth? 
Well, I think the, the honest answer is nobody is sure. The, uh, I think what we got is 10 years of very good productivity from the mid-90s to the mid-2000s, which we now understand as having been due to the fact that firms found ways of using, of implementing the innovations that were available at the time. And that, you know, it came as a surprise. It ended as a surprise. It hasn't been there since. Uh, I think the expectation is uh, we're going to have low productivity, but I wouldn't be surprised if we had another 10 years, a good decade of productivity growth in the future. But for the moment, clearly the assumption has to be that productivity growth is going to be low. You have constructed... It's probably, it's probably not due to the crisis. It's probably due to something else. Right. You've, you have constructed for the International Monetary Fund their world economic outlook. Uh, and within the low productivity growth, within the search for innovation, the real question is how do institutions like the IMF or, frankly, the Fed, how do they adapt to this low, low productivity? How does this change Chair Yellen's work? I think it changes it in two ways, which is an economy which has low productivity growth is an economy which grows more slowly, so the risk of recession is higher, investment is lower, consumption is lower. That makes for a tougher job for the Fed. And then in addition, uh, the zero lower bound is more likely to be binding, uh, so that you have to have a monetary policy which is ready to uh, react to the next recession whenever it comes and has the tools to do it. It's much harder to do in an environment of low interest rates, which is what we have. You know there's a heated debate over negative interest rates. You told us uh, your doubts about helicopter money. And here we are in negative yep. interest rates. As Ken Rogoff of Harvard mentions, we're learning as we go. He has it, of course, in his new book. Give us an update on what you've learned about negative interest rates, say, in the last two months. Uh, look, I think the problem with negative interest rates as opposed to low interest rates is with low interest rates in banks can basically, you know, do basically keep the margin, just decrease the rate at which they lend relative to the rate at which they borrow. When you get to negative interest rates, there is a problem that they are very reluctant to actually decrease the rate on, uh, on, right. on, on, deposit, on depositors, right? So it, it eats in the profits. Now, this being said, I think the news, not from the last two months, but maybe the last year, is that the effect on the profits of banks have not been big. So, so far, it hasn't led to a major effect on the profits of banks. But if it's used more, then I would start worrying. Critically here then, and you've been so good at this over the years of separating outside shocks, exogenous shocks, from what's going on inside the model, does the model of negative rates make Deutsche Bank, Commerce Bank, and for that matter, other banks, more susceptible to exogenous shocks. I mean, they have to live yeah. with economists' work. Well, I think it's a much more general issue than negative rates, is that the profits of banks you know, have come down a lot. And when you have low profits, then any shock can get you to a region where you don't want to be. So I think, yes, banks are uh, in a way more risky than they were. We have undone this partly through higher capital ratios. But in the end, they are, uh, you know, if they make very little profit, uh, the probability that they make a loss and get in trouble is higher. So we have to worry about this. You, you had a wonderful, wonderful article recently on the future of modern academic economics on DSGE, widely reported and discussed among economic leaders as, you, as yourself. The argument now is of traditional MIT economics like Blanchard, like Vice Chairman Stanley Fisher, 
and the idea of a modern Phillips curve economics, a traditional orthodox economics, and some people saying, no, wait a minute, here's what happens. If you uh, work with an Irving Fisher of 80 years ago, if you generate low rates, you end up generating disinflation and outright deflation. Help us here with a raging debate in economics about what the zero bound does. Does it help us get to inflation or does the zero bound and negative rates, does it help us get to disinflation and that ugly thing deflation? Well, there's a very serious risk. Uh, about the zero lower bound, which is that when you get to the zero lower bound and it's, you cannot decrease interest rates enough, the economy remains weak, which, means to le which leads to less inflation, which eventually leads to disinflation. This makes the real rates, the rates adjusted for in uh, inflation, even higher. And you get into a disinflation loop, uh, a disinflation spiral, uh, which we saw uh, in the 30s. Uh, fortunately, we haven't gone there. What we've gotten is deflation, but or low inflation. It hasn't got, gotten much worse. And the reason is, I think, partly because the expectations of inflation haven't reacted to the low inflation. But we know that there is a great danger. We, when we get to the zero lower bound, uh, if people start expecting deflation, then deflation becomes worse and mm -hmm. worse. The interest rates become higher and higher. And when you're there, you're in deep trouble. Uh, fortunately, that's one trouble we have avoided so far. Professor Blanchard, you know that Janet Yellen is a world-class economist, and she's under the very bright lights and pressure of coining a phrase of the moment. She didn't come up with V-shaped. I don't know who to blame for that. But then we had data dependency, forward guidance, and the new word is evidence. What does evidence mean to you? When bankers speak, central bankers speak of, we need evidence. What's the evidence? I I think uh, Janet and the Fed are blamed uh, much too much. I mean, they, they do the right thing, which is they are very clear about what they want to do. They want to achieve full employment. They want to achieve uh, steady inflation at a relatively low level. And then they look at the economy and they try to do the best. So that's called state-dependent uh, decisions, uh, which is exactly what they should be doing. And they are very clear about the fact that there is uncertainty, that some members of the FOMC believe that, you know, it's time to increase interest rates, others don't, a majority at this stage doesn't. I think that's, a, that's exactly the way to run policy. Now, markets would like kind of calendar uh, certainty. You know, we want to know exactly on what day the interest rate is going to be increased. <laughs> but if you do this, uh, exposed, they come back and they say, well, that was mm -hmm. not the right day to do it. It's too early, it's too late. So I think the Fed maybe has a communication problem in explaining this, which I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I think they are doing the right thing. I mean, basically, they are looking at the economy. They are saying, well, we're getting very close to, uh, to, you know, to full employment. It, maybe it's time to increase interest rates. Some people believe it should. Some people don't. For the moment, we don't. But we indicate we might. That's exactly what they should be saying, what they should be doing. And the markets just have to swallow hard and understand that right. that's the way to do things. Professor Blanchard, one final delicate question, if I uh, could. And I say this with immense respect for French economics, the good work now of Benoit Carré. Interview after interview, there's a hope that continental Europe will find the market-clearing courage of the Anglo-Saxon model, which is a little more brutal and a little more quickly market-clearing. Do you? How do you respond to the idea of people when they say the continent should be more like England and more like United States economics? 
I'm not sure what you're referring to. Are you referring to a need for structural reforms? Structural to make, say, reform the and the courage to clear markets. I don't, I don't know what it means to clear markets. A market's clear in Europe as much as they clear in the U.S. Supplies equal to demand. You may not like the outcome. No, I think you're talking about structural reforms. And yes, there are structural reforms which would be very important in some of the European countries. I'm in my own home country, uh, you know, labor market reforms are really essential, but they run into enormous trouble politically. And the reason is that uh, these reforms, even though they are good for the economy, make losers. And, uh, you know, one of the characteristics of politics these days is losers are very aware of that they are losing, and they are a powerful force, and there are limits to how much reform you can do, what speed at, at, uh, the speed at which you can do it. So governments have to try, but they have to be deeply conscious of the distributional effects of these reforms. Uh, so it's not going to happen overnight. Professor Blanchard, thank you so much. Olivier Blanchard with the Peterson Institute. Howard Marks, the great divide of 1978, I think of ERISA of 1974, is really the beginning of institutional public rules and regulations on pensions. Right. There was an actuarial assumption back then, which we all said, okay, that makes sense. Now you've got this outrageous responsibility mm -hmm. to make 6x, X, X percent. You can't do it. What's the new actuarial assumption in Howard Marks's world. Well, you know, when I meet with clients, uh, the main thing they want me to do is talk about the environment macro-wise sure. and, and what, you, what you do and uh, what you see. And I talk about a, a world full of uncertainty on the one hand and low prospective returns on the other. So they say, our actuarial assumption is 7.5%. What do you recommend we do? And so <laughs> I, say, <laughs> I say, I recommend you change your actuarial assumption. You see, the, the assumption used to be what you think you can make. Agreed. Now, more often, I think it is what you need to cause mm. your assets and your future cash flows to equate to your exactly. needed funds for liabilities. What's the real actuarial assumption? Yeah. I mean, Zvi Bodhi's way down at Boston University. He's led the way on a low statistic. Yeah. He, we made, you made jokes about Zvi Bodhi 10 years ago. He looks like a genius now. What's your assumption for a 60-40 efficient market blend? Well, I haven't thought about that. But, you know, I think, look, most people think, and I can't differ, that stocks will make 5 or 6% a year for the coming X years, and you know historically those num that number fluctuated between nine and eleven. What people thought, not what it right. produced, but what it thought. Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, let's say high grade bonds, uh, two to three. Mm -hmm. So if you if you average two to three and five to six, you don't get seven and a half. That's the only thing I'm sure of. You write a memo, which is gospel. Mr. Buffett talks of it as others on the street. It is a remark. I'm going not going to send it out to anybody. So don't ask me to, but you're writing on our politics. How do you fold the debate, the next debate, the debate after that? How do you fold October and the dash to the first Tuesday of November into what you want to do? I'm not here to talk about who my favorite candidate is, and I don't think that's why you, that would be rude. you asked me on. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the one thing I know is that if Hillary Clinton is elected, most people have a pretty good idea what she'll do. And in fact, the complaint of her, of the people who don't like Hillary is that she's too predictable. She's too going to be 
too reliably status quo. Our fiscal line is That's pretty right. much on That's the right. present trend. Right. If Donald Trump is elected, I don't think we know what he's going to do. And in fact, he believes that keeping your cards close to your vest and being unpredictable is an important part mm -hmm. of being a leader. Uh, so I think that, uh, and, and yet the market abhors uncertainty. That's a really old saw that mm -hmm. you've heard many times, and I have too. And I think that if you get Trump, you're going to get uncertainty. So if I thought Trump was going to win, then I would anticipate a decline. Now, it happens that we don't invest for the short term. I, I abhor, personally, the term trader, and we're not traders. And we're also not in the stock market, uh, the U.S. mainstream stock market, uh, in any important way. And so I think the safest thing to say is that we are not doing anything in anticipation of, of the uh, election outlook. Bill Gross has a moniker now, unconstrained. I'm not sure from a prospectus basis whether it's a publicly traded mutual fund, or I should say publicly registered mutual fund, or more private money, such as Howard Marks has, what unconstrained is. Do you like definitions within your portfolio, or is the new new, the new normal, going to be for everyone in fixed income, unconstrained? I think you have to define what you do, because the client has to fit you into a batting order. And if you have if you have a number, but you refuse to tell anybody what position you play or what your skills are, mm -hmm. then how can you be put in the lineup? Uh, so you know our approach is we have funds that do 25 different things, and we enunciate them clearly, and we have never strayed. That means the client can figure out whether we should play a place in his batting order, uh, and managers in theory, can do better for their clients if they are unconstrained, if they can buy any security in their universe uh, or in any universe. Um, but that makes them very unpredictable. So there has to be a kind of a, a give and take uh, of, of the flexibility that will enhance a manager's uh, uh, potential and the predictability that the client needs. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.